I'm from Fayetteville, Arkansas. It's just south of here, <laughs> if you know where we're at. And it's funny because I never, uh, there's like this great wall that separates like 540 from Fayetteville to Springdale because I never, I never go past there. And, and I remember the day I'm like, I said to my wife, Jess, there is this thing so beautiful that it is like the rivers of Colorado. It is the pinnacle mall. And, and we need to nestle there and, and go because we don't really have that in Fayetteville, you know. I know we have a lot of people who went to U of A, correct, which school starts on Mondays. So you're going to have about 15,000 students converge. And, um, you know, it's, as I study world religions, that's kind of what I've been giving my time to um, and comparing them with Christianity, uh, Christianity is, is, is so interesting when you look at it through the scope of Hinduism or Buddhism or Islam or Confucianism or Taoism. Um, and, and when you look and you go, okay, let's just study the holy books of Buddhism or Hinduism. And, and you compare those holy books with our scriptures. There is literally nothing else like our scriptures on the planet. And, and again, I've, I've, been, I've read through the Quran like four times. And, and every time I read through the Quran, I'm like, man, this is nowhere near the Bible. And, and you just go, there is something just so intrinsically powerful about this book that sometimes you don't appreciate it if you kind of live in the Christian world. You know, and like you were born a Christian, raised a Christian, you drive a Christian car, you have a Christian house, you drink Christian coffee, you go to a Christian church, you married a Christian, you know, you, you have a Christian job, you wear Christian clothes. Sometimes you don't really realize, man, this is, this is unique. And especially when you say, okay, this book was written over a period of 1,500 years by over 40 authors on three continents, but it has one theme, one plot, one conclusion, and flows through ease through history explaining it. And that's what we want to look at this morning, this mission of God and how we are blessed to be a blessing. And... If you, I, just, I try to reduce things. My major in college was elementary ed, so I try to reduce things to like a third grade level. And so if you want to, if you're taking notes or if you've got something to jot down, just jot down these three circles. God, Israel, nations. And maybe for the next you know, t- five or six weeks as you read your Bible, you can view Scripture through this lens. Because this is going to help you understand literally the first 1,500 pages of the Bible. God. Blessing Israel to bless the nations. Three circles. God, blessing Israel to bless the nations. God, blessing Israel to bless the nations. Now, you can look at Genesis chapter 10. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. Um, Or if you have it on a smartphone or whatever, you know, if you're a step above us, um, you you can do that. Genesis chapters 1 through through 10 are just the introduction, okay? So God uh, creates humanity, man sins in Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 7 and 8, he floods the earth. In Genesis chapter uh, 9, Noah steps off the ark and he he says, man, go bless the, you know, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. And then you, you know, you come to Genesis 10, which a lot of us skip because it's like the, it's called the table of the nations. You know, if you look at Genesis chapter 10, this is like when you're trying to read the Bible in chronological order, you just kind of skip this because it's all the, it's just lists of people's names, right? But it's very interesting because Moses, who's writing the first five books of the Bible, Genesis through Deuteronomy, comes to Genesis chapter 10. 
And he will say in Genesis chapter 10, verse 5, From these the peoples of the coastland spread out, each to their own language, their own clan, to their own nation. And from Genesis chapter 10, verse 6, all the way to verse 32, from Genesis 10, verse 6 to verse 32, he will give you what's called the table of the nations. Now, this is where we get all the nations of the world. This is where we get the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Israelites, the Ninevites, the Amalekites that we read about ever so often. This is where we get them right here in Genesis chapter 10. Well, then in Genesis chapter 11, Moses says, man, my reader doesn't know why they were scattered. I'm going to tell them. And so he says the whole earth had one language. This is chapter 11, verse 1. The whole earth had one language and a common speech. As men moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar. They settled there. They said, come, let's make a name for ourselves. And so Moses will actually give us the list of the nations and then share with us why they were scattered. They refused to, to fill the earth. But what happens in Genesis chapter 10 is very interesting. And I sat down at Starbucks the other day and I was like, if you had to, li- if you had to write a, a one sentence summary of the entire Old Testament, like a one sentence summary, this is what it is. Out of all the nations, God chose one nation to bless all the nations. Out of all the nations, in Genesis chapter 10, we have 72 nations created. From Genesis chapter 10, out of all the nations, God will pick one nation, the Israelites. But it's not for that one nation. It's so that God would reach all the nations from that one nation. Let me say it again. Out of all the nations... God chose one nation to reach all the nations. That's Genesis chapter 10. So it's no wonder when you look over to Genesis chapter 12, you see this nation that God chooses. He pulls out from the table of the nations in Genesis chapter 10, the nation of the Israelites. And he says, Abraham, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great. But before we talk about that, here's, here's, here's your end of the bargain. Leave, leave your country, your people, and your father's household and go to the land I will show you. Why? God was establishing a nation that would bless all nations, leave. Now, Abraham had no idea some crucial points as of Genesis 12. You realize as of Genesis 12, when God spoke to Abraham these words, Abraham had no idea the name of God. Pretty important. It's MIA. God doesn't tell him his name till Genesis 17. I am El Shaddai, God Almighty. Abraham had no idea the land he was to go to. Abraham had no idea how long he was to leave. Was this like a six-week trip or a six-year trip? What? Abraham, leave. But guess what? I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. You will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I will curse. But all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Abraham, I am raising you up. I'm creating a nation known as the Israelites that is birthed in you. But it is not for you. It's so that all peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And guess what? He says the same thing to Isaac. Isaac, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and give them all these lands, right? Through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed. Jacob, your descendants will be like the dust of the earth and you will spread out to the west, to the east, to the north, to the south. But out of all the nations, I'm picking you. But it's not for you. It's to bless all the nations. And in Genesis 32, God will change Jacob's name to Israel. And for the rest of the Old Testament, you will follow this one nation. Isn't it at all weird that the holiest book on the planet 
the only nation you follow for the first 1,500 pages is the Israelites. You don't talk about any other nation. Let me show you. Turn to 2 Canaanites 2.2. You can't. Turn to, turn to 1 Amalekites. I'll show you something. You can't. Why is it? Why is it that God is so consumed with this one nation that by the time you leave Genesis, it's like, okay, God, okay, there's, there's 70 of them, they're in Egypt, can we move on and talk about the other nations that are on the planet? No, you stay fixated on the nation of Israel. You watch them go into Egypt. You watch them for 400 years be, be slave drivers in Egypt. You watch them come out of Egypt and go for a 40-year tour of the desert. You watch them go up to the promised land. And so finally it's like, okay, it's Deuteronomy. It's the end of Deuteronomy. They're going into the promised land. Can we leave the nation of Israel and talk about someone else? No, you follow Joshua for the whole book of Joshua as they invade 31 distinct kings in the promised land. So now it's like, okay, the nation's in the promised land. Can we talk about the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amalekites? No, you see them raise up Saul, David, uh, Solomon, Rehoboam, the splitting of the kingdom, Judah, and Israel. And you're like, okay, you're kidding me. Now you're on the blank page. That's it? That's the, that's the first 1,500 pages of the Bible? Following this one nation? Seems like a lot of real estate to give to this one nation. Out of all the nations, God chose one nation to reach all the nations. And you as the reader, when you start in Genesis and read through the Old Testament, you as the reader will follow this nation. Where this nation goes, the Israelites, you go. The only reason you hear about the Ninevites, Canaanites, Amalekites... And Jebusites is because they bumped into the Israelites. Moses went up to God and the Lord called to him. This is what I want you to say to the house of Jacob, to the people of Israel. He takes them up to Mount Sinai. He says, this is what I want you to tell. Out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Out of all the nations, the whole earth is mine. You will be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. I am, I am going to make the Israelites a kingdom of priests. Now, think about that term, kingdom of priests. And this is the first time we kind of hear that injected into the, into, the, into the Old Testament. What does a priest mean? What's the word mean? Go to a Catholic church and just kind of ask him, excuse me, Mr. Priest, what is it that you do? And he's going to say, oh, I intercede. I, God reveals his will to me, and I intercede on behalf of the people. The people come to me, and I talk to them about God. He says, Israel, I'm going to place you in between me and the nations. You are my intercessor. I bless you, and you bless the nations. The nations will come to you, and you will bless them with what I have blessed you with. You are my mediator. You are my intercessor. Now, you keep going, and you see Solomon. He prays this prayer when the temple's dedicated. And, you know, you can go out on your front lawn and pray this prayer. It takes you about 12, 15 minutes in 1 Kings chapter 8. But there's something very interesting about this prayer. Solomon goes out, and the nation of Israel is on one side of the hill, and the, and, and the Israelites is on the, uh, uh, the Solomon's on the other. And he lifts up his eyes to heaven, and he begins to pray. And it's an awesome prayer. You can read it. You know, it's just an incredible prayer. But he gets to this one point, and listen to what he says. He says, as for the foreigner who does not belong to your people Israel, but has come from a distant land because of your name, for men will hear of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm. When he comes and prays towards this temple, then hear from heaven your dwelling place and do whatever the foreigner asks of you. And at that point, the entire nation of Israel on the other side of the hill was like, what did he just say? 
what did he just say? It sounded like he said when the Philistines come from a foreign land, that they have access into our temple. And that he's saying that whatever the Philistines pray, he wants our God, Yahweh, to answer. What if we don't like what they pray? The closest equivalent to that today would be if a pastor got up here and said, man, I just want to close this out in prayer. Lord, I pray that all the Muslims in this community would come to this altar and whatever they pray, that you would respond. I mean, be like, uh, we have an emergency meeting. You're on sabbatical. <laughs> you know, it's like, what if we don't like what they say? Solomon knew, though. He knew so that all peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you. God, blessing Israel to bless the nations. I'm going to say this again. God, blessing Israel to bless the nations. And if you just, if you just take a look at the, the, the way God blesses the nation of Israel, there will always be four things that you will see when God blesses Israel. You are always going to see an increase in land, an increase in finances, an increase in family, and an increase in a great name. Those four things will accompany the blessing. An increase in family, finances, a great name, those things. You follow me? And so it was interesting because when you think about how God blesses us today, we all kind of are apart. We, 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 have, we have some of those in all different proportions. We're all blessed differently. But he says to Abraham, Abraham, I'm going to give you the land between the Nile and the Euphrates. So you always see land and, and, and that following the nation of Israel's blessing. You always see finances, right? When you go into the land, don't take a dime from the kings. At least your, 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 your people say that your finances fell from their hands and not mine. Man, I'm going to go out to the sand of the Mediterranean Sea and throw it in the air. That's going to be your descendant. So family and then a great name. That's what we saw in Genesis chapter 12. Those four things. But here's what's crazy. When you look at believers today, when you look at Christians and you ask them, man, what is it that you love, cherish, adore, are going for? What is it that you dream about and desire and want? What is it that you spend your time trying to cultivate? And it is embarrassing how many, when you look at their heart, their calendar, and their pocketbook, spend their entire day consumed with increasing their land, family, finances, and a great name. Land, family, finances, and a great name. And what happens subtly is we forget the blesser and we get consumed with the blessing. And this is something that the nation of Israel themselves dealt with. Now look at this passage. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine upon us. This is David speaking to the nation of Israel. May God be gracious to us, Israel. Bless us, Israel. Make his face shine upon us, Israel. But it's not for us, Israel. It's so that your ways may be known on earth, your salvation among all nations. Now, the further you read into the Old Testament, there is one overarching observation that you will have. The further you read into the Old Testament, the more disobedient the nation of Israel became. Now, it is one level of disobedience when God says to the nation of Israel, bless the nations, bless the nations, bless the nations. And they say, no thanks. Appreciate the option. Not going to do it. It is a whole new level of disobedience when the very prophets themselves are raised up and they too refuse. When the prophets whose God's voice to the nation refuse, there is, there is a whole different level of disobedience. And you have entire prophets in the Old Testament. Entire prophets. 
who are known for the Ninevites don't deserve the blessing. The Ninevites don't deserve it, Lord. We're special. We're the nation of Israel. You bless us with land, family, finances, and a great name. We're going places. We're seeing things. We're, we're just your chosen people. And you know what? In light of me being chosen, I'm the one who figures out who to distribute the blessing to. And the Ninevites don't deserve. The Ninevites don't deserve. And so you have prophets who are known for three words, but Jonah ran. But Jonah ran. And the capstone of the end of the Old Testament, the summary, wherever they went among the nations. This is, this is the low point of the nation of Israel just before you transition to the New Testament. Wherever they went among the nations, they had one passion, one desire, one ambition, one goal, and that was to profane the name of God. He had concern for his name, so he had to take the land. He systematically began to take the blessings from Israel. So it's like land, they're taken into exile under Nebuchadnezzar the Babylonians. Finances, the temple's reduced to rubble. A great name, no one would dare even speak of the nation of Israel's God. Least judgment fell on their house. And family, hundreds of thousands killed. And so by the time you get to the end of the, New Te- of, the end of the Old Testament, you have this observation. This moment of, wow, blessings can be a very dangerous thing when you become consumed with them. Blessings can become a very dangerous thing when you become consumed with them. Now, I did, I did a lot of uh, research in sh- this concept of short-term mission trips. And... Um, just looked at the good of short-term mission trips, the bad of short-term mission trips, and the opportunity that short-term mission trips we have. I mean, I can be on a plane from XNA Airport to Beijing, China in 17 hours, okay? That same trip in 1886 took about four and a half months. (laughs) So the fact that we can be places quickly has pros and cons. And as I studied short-term mission trips, there's something very interesting that I observed. First of all, The closest data that we have is that between 1.4 and 4 million people each year will go on a short-term mission. Okay, let me say that again. You'd think we could narrow it down today in Google's age, but we can't. Between 1.4 and 4 million people will go on a short-term mission. Now, a short-term mission trip is anything from two days to two years. And as I did the research on short-term missions... I realized something. The majority, almost 80% of the 1.4 to 4 million people who go on a short-term mission trip have one thing in common. The majority, almost 80% have one thing in common. I'm like, here it is. You ready? They're between the ages of 18 and 25, or actually 16 and 25. The majority of people who go on a short-term mission trip are between the ages of 16 and 25. So I'm, I'm going, man, how, why is this? Like, why is it that the majority of people who go on a short-term mission trip, two days to two years, are between the ages of 16 and 25? And I found the answer. I cracked the code. I wrote it down. And I buried it. And I made a map. And you can buy it. Why? 
why is it that the majority of people who go on a short-term mission trip are between the ages of 16 and 25? Here's the answer. It's incredible. Get ready. I'm going to say it. It's coming. It's intense. Prepare. People between the ages of 16 and 25 have no blessings, no offense, none taken. You can stand at the Starbucks line on campus at University of Arkansas, and the only blessing I can find that 16 to 25-year-olds have is an iPhone, and it's most likely cracked, and then they get a case. And literally, that is the only blessing, and they covet it, they love it, they enjoy it. And so here's what happens. It's like, man, why is it that the majority of people between, who go on a short-term mission are between 16 and 25? And it's like, man, they don't have any blessings. And so what happens is they don't have anything to lose. So it's like, man, I'm going to go to Yemen for six months. And your parents are like, oh, are you kidding me? You, okay, you're, you don't really have a life. Go find yourself, you know. And they come back in their 20s and they want to get married. And they come back in their, in their 30s, they want to have kids. In their 40s, they're raising the kids. In the 50s, they have grandkids. In the 60s, they have diabetes. In the 70s, they have oxygen masks. It's like, I can't go. And so what happens is after they, after they get back from this short-term mission trip, the rest of their life is accumulating blessings. And that's why there is less, short, there is less long-term missionaries today in 2012 than we had in 1989, even though we've got 16 times more short-term missionaries going out. It doesn't translate into long-term missions. Why? Because the person who goes comes back and the rest of their life, they just start accumulating. And it, the older you get, the more you get and the harder it is to go. The harder it is to get, just be released from that stuff. The older you get, the more you get. The older you get, the more you get. And all of a sudden you look up and you say, man, this is a funny feeling, honey. The blessings I'm holding are really holding me. I mean, I was sure, man, I'm, I'm loving God. I'm obeying his will. I'm wherever he wants me. But then as soon as he asked me to step out, to do something, to invest, to be a part, to go, to pray, to welcome, I'm like, no, I, 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 sorry. I've got softball tonight. And it's a pretty big deal. Because I'm kind of a big deal. What happens is, whatever, what I just described, Israel began to accumulate the blessing, and they fell in love with the blessing and forgot the blesser. And so, when you transition to the New Testament, Jesus will try to show God, Israel, nations, God, Israel, nations. And that's what he's about. That's all he's trying to show. And, and it's interesting because the nation of Israel had this perspective. God, Israel, God, Israel, God, Israel, God, Israel. They kind of left off the bottom nation half. They were just like, God, Israel, God, Israel, God, Israel. And Jesus is trying to, to re-inject them with this concept of God has blessed you, Israel, but it's not for you. It's for the nations. And so, in Luke chapter 4 is the beginning of Christ's ministry as Luke explains it. Jesus goes into the desert for 40 days. He comes out. He goes into, the, into his hometown, Nazareth. This is like Luke chapter 4, verse 16. He goes into his hometown, Nazareth. He goes into the synagogue. And obviously he has a reputation because they give him the daily reading. Because they just didn't give that to any, any random person. He obviously had a reputation. They give him the daily reading. 
And uh, he, he opens the scroll, and it just so happens to be the most messianic promise of all of Isaiah. And he reads out loud, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me. He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the, to the kingdom, to proclaim freedom to the captives, sight to the blind, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolls up the scroll and he puts it on the shelf. And everyone in the synagogue are like, who is this guy? Who is this? He's from here. We know his father. We know his mother. And then Jesus will, will share the first words of his public ministry as Luke explains it. These are the first words of his public ministry. I assure you, there were many widows in Israel in Elisha's time when the sky was shut up for three and a half years and there was severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elisha was not sent to any of them but to a widow in Zarephath, the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha, the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman, the Syrian. Now, when you read that passage, first of all, we yawn. We're like, okay, I what? Send me to the parables and the good stuff. Come on. I didn't even know that was in my Bible and it's in red. I wasn't going to tell you. I did. These are the first words of his public ministry. Listen to what he says. He says, Pharisees, nation of Israel, let me ask you a question in the synagogue. In Elisha's time, were there Jews who were widows? Yes, in Elisha's time, there were many Jews who were widows. Yet the prophet was sent to none of them, but to a widow in Zarephath, a non-Israelite, member of the, not Israel, but a member of the nations, a widow in Zarephath, a hundred miles north of Israel. And in Elisha's time, was there lepers who were Jews who needed Yahweh's healing? Why, yes, in Elisha's time, there were many lepers in Israel who were Jews. Yet why did God send the prophet to none of them, but to a pork-eating, pagan, uncircumcised Gentile member of the other nations? Enemy military officer Naaman the Syrian. Now, we read that and we're like, we don't understand the ramifications, but Jesus was saying, man, even in your Old Testament prophets, God blessed them, not for Israel, but for the nation. And that's when you see this. You see everyone in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. Matter of fact, everyone in the synagogue, after they heard the opening paragraph to Jesus' ministry, said, this man must die. And they take him to a cliff and he disappears among them. He literally does a miracle of a disappearing act and walks, walks in front of them and disappears. And what's crazy is Jesus would have died after the first paragraph of his ministry had he not done that. What was so powerful about this statement that made the nation of Israel say, no, you are a false prophet, Jesus, because he was trying to show the blessings of Israel was not just for Israel. And again, the same thing happens that, that happened in the Old Testament. The more you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the further you go, the more disobedient the nation of Israel is. And the Pharisees are just on the front edge of this. Many people heard that he had given this miraculous sign of raising Lazarus from the dead. So the Pharisees said to one another, this is getting us nowhere. The whole world has gone after him. Nothing bothered the nation of Israel more than to see other nations blessed. And this was Jesus's ministry mantra. And in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus does a miracle. And the Pharisees look at Jesus's miracle in Matthew 12 and say this, you cast out demons by Satan himself. And from then on, Jesus says, Israel, enough. 
I am pulling away and I'm taking my disciples aside and I'm training them for the delay. And from Matthew chapter 13 to Matthew 28, Jesus begins to speak in parables. There's no parables before Matthew 13 because it's almost like Jesus was holding out hope that the nation of Israel would understand the blessing to the nations. But when they look in Matthew 12 and say, you're Satan incarnate, Jesus says, enough. I'm pulling my disciples away. So in Matthew 16, he says to the disciples, who do people say that I am? And who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, you are Christ, the son of the living God. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my father in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overcome. For the first time in Matthew 16, we see something that has not happened since Genesis 12. In Matthew 16, Jesus looks at the nation of Israel and says, Enough, I am establishing my church, and the church will be a blessing to the nations. And Jesus will mention the word church in Matthew 16. He'll mention the word church in Matthew 18. And it's, it, there's a rule in football. If somebody fumbles, you pick the ball up and run with it. Where Israel failed, the church will succeed. There is a church because there is a mission of God that has yet to be fulfilled. I used to think there was a church for my comfort, community, and convenience. I thought that was the three things of church planning, comfort, community, and convenience. And if you're single or retire early or just bored or don't have a good personality, you shouldn't be involved in missions, right? But if, if you wear Toms and you're interested in just doing crazy things, just go. You need to go. I used to think missions was like something you did in March when you send there all the high school kids to Guatemala in their pink t-shirts with a verse on the back and they come back and kind of present what they did and we clap and say, okay, let's move on. But instead, the reason there is a church is because there is a mission of God. That's what we're about. And Jesus will remind the disciples over and over again, Matthew 28, Go and make disciples of all nations. Mark 16, go and preach the gospel, the good news to all creation. This is what is written. He will suffer and rise from the dead. Repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached to all the nations. As the Father sent me, so send I you. And really what's crazy is for the rest of the New Testament, the people who write the New Testament, Peter and Paul and John, the people who, who, who write the New Testament are going to take the Old Testament promises of Israel being a light to the nations and inject them into the church. Listen to this. This is what the Lord has commanded us. This is Paul the Apostle in Antioch. And then he quotes, hey, church, this is what the Lord has commanded us, that we would be a light to the nations, that you might bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. And he cherry picks this messianic promise in, in Isaiah 49, 6, and he brings it into the church. Hey, church, we're about reaching the nations. Peter, you know, or Paul says in this, he redeemed us. This is the most missions passage in all the New Testament, in my opinion. He redeemed us, church, in order that the blessings given to Israel in Abraham might finally make their way to the nations. He redeemed us, church. Why? What's our role to tithe? What's our role? He redeemed us in order the blessings given to Abraham, a.k.a. Israel, 
might finally make their way to the nations. I mean, think about it. You're Peter, and you're writing a letter to six churches in the province of Asia. And you're trying to explain to them the definition of church. What do you put? Peter goes all the way back to the Old Testament, to Mount Sinai, where Moses said to the nation of Israel, you are my holy priesthood, my, 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 my royal kingdom, right? You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And he literally picks that verse that God gave the nation of Israel about being his people for a purpose. And he says, Israel, what was for Israel is now for the church. Church, you are my people. But it's to call those in darkness, out of darkness, into the light. First John 2, 2. He is the atoning sacrifice for my sins, but not only for my sins, for the sins of the whole world. God blessing the church to bless the nations. And it works in Revelation 7, 9. We see the multicultural worship service from every tribe, tongue, and nation, a representative from people, of people worshiping Christ. The question is, are you a part? Are you a part of the problem or solution? I'm telling you, when those blessings get you and grab you, you can't release them. And I I speak from experience. I mean, I remember my wife saying, Todd, we've got this little girl now, Camden, and let's just pray that she would be a long-term missionary to the Arab world. Get behind the veil of Islam. And I'm like, Jess, there's no way. She's going to live in Fayetteville, work at Chick-fil-A, and golf with me. I don't laugh at you. And she's like, Todd, but we've crisscrossed the nation recruiting people to go. And I'm like, exactly. We did that so ours can stay. I don't know why, you you know, why is is this a problem for you? It's very difficult, isn't it? It is very difficult. And so what happens is if you ask someone in the American church to kind of draw out their theology of God, this is the way it looks. It's like, God, me, God, me, God, me. This is the way I pray. This is the way I read. This is what I, how I read my Bible. I mean, go th- look at the verses in your Bible that you underline and see how many of them are promises to you versus about God's story and glory. I mean, it's almost embarrassing to be like, yeah, uh, it's about me too. Yeah, that's about me too. The way we pray, the way we read our Bible, the way we give is all about us. And God wants to birth us out of there to say, man, look, from Genesis to the maps in the back, it's one book, one theme, one purpose. God blessing you to bless the nations. The question is, are you on board? Let's pray. Lord, we just ask that you would continue to stamp eternity on our hearts, continue to give us eyes to see, help us to understand the blessings that we're holding that we just don't want to let go. Lord, I just ask that we would be a church consumed with the sending process instead of uh, other things, Lord. And God, that you would just give us a roadmap and how we can use our blessing to bless the nations, Lord, in your name.